0: We continue in our studies in the book of Luke this morning and we are in chapter seven and this morning we're going to be looking at the passage verses thirty six to verse fifty. Luke chapter seven verse thirty six to fifty. Let's read together. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him, and he entered and he entered the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with a perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay He graciously forgave them both. So so which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Then those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I'm sure you haven't found yourself in this position, but have you ever found yourself walking down the street and someone comes past you and you think, Whew Man! That person's a sinner. No? Okay, it's me. Sometimes, you know, we look down our noses at people. We'll see someone and they don't quite look like they should look. They look a bit way out there. And we think, oh, they've got a long way to go. And you know, it starts reflecting on us. We start thinking, what a good person I am. Look at them. This is exactly what was happening in this reading this morning. There's two characters involved. Simon the Pharisee and this woman who was a sinner. And Jesus interacts with them and we can learn from that interaction. Just a bit of context before we carry on. If you look at the what they call the harmony of the Gospels, in other words where people are put the four Gospels together and then they look at the timelines we will note that when Jesus has this incident at the Pharisees' home, he's just been speaking to the crowd before this and given an invitation, a gracious, a gracious invitation to the people, where he said, come to me and I will give you rest. And this possibly explains why this woman finds herself in the position she is in. Because she seems to have heard the message of salvation She seems to have accepted it and now she's at this meal and she wants to show Jesus her gratitude. So you need to know that little bit of background. So let's look at this curious Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee. What can we learn from him? What can we learn about him? We see firstly in verse 36 that Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to a meal. Now there's no reaction. Alright. So, Why was that surprising? Because you see, Pharisees didn't normally do that to Jesus. He was like their enemy. And so we've got to ask ourselves, so why? Why did Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus to a meal? And it wasn't just a like biscuits and tea meal. This was a banquet. He invited Jesus to a banquet, a feast. What was his motive? Maybe it was curiosity. I want to get to know this Jesus a little bit more. He's making so much trouble for us, so I'll invite him for a meal. Or maybe it was pride. I'll get to grips with this rabbi. I'm an important Pharisee, Simon. Or maybe Simon the Pharisee had a bit of a good person syndrome. I'll show him and the other Pharisees What a good Pharisee I am. See, I've even invited this rabbi into my home. Now, those could be possible motivations, right? But he has Jesus for a meal to his home. Now, we need to just stop right there, and you need to climb a bit into Jewish culture here. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on meals. What was a meal etiquette like when people were invited to these banquets? Firstly, Males and females were separated. Sorry, ladies, that's the way they did it those days. Alright? The males were together, they'd eat together, the ladies would eat together. But banquets, ladies didn't go there. Males had banquets. Alright, so that's the way it was. I can't do anything about it. And so here we have these guests, these male guests. And being a Pharisee, these would have mostly have been other Pharisees. Because Simon's going to make a point. And so we have these Pharisees arriving at his home. And the first thing that would happen was, and in our western culture we might be a bit surprised, you'd get a holy kiss. Now men, don't be frightened by that. This was a holy kiss, right? This was, um, going back to the Old Testament, when someone came to your door, you would show them an honor by giving them a holy kiss. It's a bit like the European kiss in a way. It's a bit two-sided affair. A, a peck and a peck. Alright? Bit like in the West we use the handshake today. It's a bit more formal, and um, in the Maori culture, a hongi, same type thing. And um, like I said, the European style—that was—that was was mostly what it was about. So it wasn't quite the informal, hey bro. It wasn't quite that, All right, more formal. It was a holy kiss. And the next thing that happened was your guest would um, recline at a table. Or sit on a chair, and then their feet were washed. Imagine if we had to do all this today—it'd be interesting. Their feet were washed, and I'll come back to that. And then their hair and their beard was anointed—if they had a beard, um, or if they had hair, by the way—it um, was anointed. So a little bit of oil, sometimes it was perfumed oil, was put on the hair and the beard. And then they were assigned a place at a table. So that was a general etiquette when you visited one of these homes. They usually sat at a low table when they were having a meal. Sometimes cushions on the floor and you'd sit on kind of sit on your legs with your feet out behind you. But in this case, they'd kind of taken on the Roman and the Greek fashion, even though they wouldn't admit that, and they would recline at what they called a triclinium. It was a low bench. You'd kind of lie on your left side so that you could use your right hand to eat your food. The left hand wasn't used at all. And then your feet would be stretched out kind of behind you. And that gave an opportunity for servants to come in and while you were lying there, they would kind of wash your feet just kind of out the way. You wouldn't have to see. Alright, you getting the picture? Okay. So, this foot washing, why was it so important? It was important. Don't just look past it. You see, your feet were seen in the Jewish culture as dishonorable. Why? Not because you had ugly feet, by the way, but because people mostly wore sandals those days and they'd walk along dusty roads. They didn't have beautiful tar sealed roads like we have. And as you were walking along these dusty roads, you'd have animals there, you'd have animal droppings, you'd have people giving the good old hoik into the road, spitting, and it would all mix up with this dust, all right? You're getting the picture? And so there's your beautiful feet going through this dusty road, getting full of muck, basically. And so when you came to a home it was really important that you had to have your feet washed. You see, if you didn't, your feet in a Jewish home, unwashed feet would defile the home because of the animal manure and the dust and the dirt. And even more so in a Pharisee's home, they were nearly fanatical about these rules. And so we have Jesus coming into this home and he enters in but none of this happens for him. Now that was saying something as well. You see, by not giving Jesus the holy kiss, by not washing his feet, by not anointing his head and his beard with oil, what was Simon saying? What was Simon saying? I have contempt for you. This honor, And so you need to pick it up. So that's what's happened. And Jesus and everyone knew what has happened. Now, let's change the camera, alright? And we go to the meals and this woman. Now, you need to understand how the meals work too in these homes. It wasn't a private affair where you closed the door and then you had your nice little cozy meal. No, no. It stayed open to the street. And the Jewish culture was that people could come in off the street and especially those people who didn't have enough food, the destitute, they could actually come into your home and while you were reclined at your table, they could come and sit around the walls and they could just come and watch. A bit different. My home is my castle these days in our homes, isn't it? But here these people could come in off the street, they could come and sit around the walls and they could even sit there and chat to your guests. And what they would be waiting for was the scraps from the table. And afterwards they would get handed out whatever was left over. And so that was kind of the cultural setting that we find ourselves in this morning. And so that is how this woman managed to get in, into this male place. She could sit there because she was off the street. And she went to Simon the Pharisee's home at great risk. You see, they knew who she was. She had a bit of a reputation in town. Now, the Bible doesn't say she was a prostitute, but all indications point to it. She was a woman of no good repute. And they knew her reputation, they knew her character was a bit questionable, and yet she also came in and said something about her. She needed to see Jesus. And so she risked being thrown out of the Pharisee's home. She was what you might call today the first gate crasher, right? Right? And so there you see the picture in your head. Now here's this woman, Jesus is reclining at the table and she comes and stands behind him over his feet. She's going to wash his feet. That's what they thought. But she comes and stands at his feet and in her hand she's got this alabaster jar, this vial, containing a very, very expensive perfume. And they were kind of sealed up. And the only way you could use this perfume was to actually break the neck like they do with medicine today when they inject you. Alright, they break the neck and then they manage to use this ointment. Well, she had to break this vial which meant that you couldn't use it after that. It was spoiled. And she wanted to anoint Jesus' feet. She wanted to pay her respects to Jesus. And so as she's in the process, you need to go with me into this picture. Here's this woman, Jesus is lying there. She takes this alabaster ointment. Everyone knows who she is. And she breaks it over Jesus' feet. And she's about to anoint his feet when emotion wells up in her and she starts to weep. Can you see it in your mind? Here's this woman standing and she's starting to weep uncontrollably standing over Jesus' feet. And she's trying to anoint his feet but nothing's working because she's weeping. Have you ever been in a situation where you weep so much you can't help yourself? That's her. And there she's standing over Jesus' feet and the tears are pouring down onto his feet. And now she's, I can see it, she can nearly not help herself. Oh, now what? And so the only thing she can do is she hasn't got a cloth or anything. It's not her home. And she's got long hair. Now in those days, you have to know as well, a woman was not allowed to wear long hair in public. She had to tie it up somehow. And so here, because if you wore your hair exposed like that in public, it meant you were a prostitute. Alright, well, maybe she had a head start. But her hair was tied up. She lets her down, and here she is standing over Jesus' feet, and so she does the only thing she thinks she can do, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with oil. And before she can find herself, she's down on her knees, kissing his feet. Imagine the scene here. Here, have these prim and proper men sitting here. Here's this woman weeping uncontrollably. You see the picture? You see, she was overwhelmed with this genuine sorrow. She was overwhelmed and overcome by gratitude for having her sins forgiven. We find that out later. Her heart is full to overflowing with love and reverence for this one who has opened her eyes to the kingdom. This one who has forgiven her sins, her many sins. That she even had a reputation for. This one who had brought a radical change into her life. And she cries uncontrollably over his feet. She's past caring what people think. How do you see your faith? Have you ever got so emotional about it? When you think about what God has done for you? I saw a woman like this once when I was in Waka. I was preaching the words and this woman was crying and she was flat on her face. Every time I opened the word and read from it, she'd go flat on her face and then she would weep. That picture stays with me. How much do we appreciate what God has done for you and I? Now, let's turn this camera to the critical host. You see, here's Simon the Pharisee. It's his party, right? And here's this gatecrasher woman who's come in and she's kind of drawn all the attention away from him. And everyone's looking at her. And so Simon becomes incensed and deeply offended. If he could wear a speech bubble, he would because everything that comes out now is in his head. We just know because it's put here in Scripture for us. He's incensed and deeply offended. Wasn't it enough that this woman had come into his home, this one off the streets, come among his Pharisee friends, here she is in his home, and now look at her. And who's this teacher anyway? Why does he get all the attention? And worst of all, Jesus does nothing about it. He's allowing this woman to do this to him. Why doesn't he stop her? And he's incensed. You see, he, he judgmentally reaches three conclusions. And you can look in your text there, verses 39 to 47. What are the three conclusions he comes to in his head? And remember, it's still in his head. He hasn't uttered a word yet. He thinks these three things. See the progression in his mind. If Jesus is indeed this great prophet he says he is, then he would know what kind of woman this is anointing his feet. He would, because a prophet would know. Secondly, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her do what she's doing. And thirdly, since he doesn't stop her and he allows her to anoint his feet, he can't be a prophet. And so he shouldn't be acknowledged as one. Huh, who is he? Says Simon. Now imagine Simon's surprise. I'd love to have seen his eyes. You know those camera shots where they're right on the face and then the eyes go, huh? I'd love to have seen his face when Jesus said this, verse 40. Jesus answered Simon. Hang on, hang on. Simon hasn't said a word yet. But Jesus answers Simon. You see, Simon had only been thinking these things, but Jesus could read hearts. He could read Simon's heart. He could read this woman's heart. He knew that she was grateful He could see this gratefulness welling up inside her. He could see that her sins would be forgiven because he was involved in that process. He knew where her heart was at and that's why he allowed all this. But Simon, he knew what was happening in his heart too. He knew the rebellion that was there in Simon's heart. And so Jesus answered Simon and he says to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now don't glance over those words either. They're very specific. When a Pharisee said to someone, I have something to tell you, in Pharisee speak, that would mean, I'm going to now give you a little bit of wisdom. Now listen up, this is wisdom. And so Jesus uses Pharisee speak, and he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And so Simon would sit up and think, well now, what's going to come out of this? And so that's why Simon's answer which might seem a bit casual to you and I, when he says, say it, teacher. That was a normal Pharisee response. I've got something to say, and then they say, say it, teacher. And then the the truth would come out. But what what Jesus says next is not just a bit of truth. It actually hits Simon right between the eyes, bullseye. And it goes much deeper than the self-righteous Simon had ever expected. Instead of a truism, Jesus tells a parable again with a sting in the tail. Now, do you remember last week's parable? What was the parable? The parable of the brats, remember? That the kids are playing in the marketplace. They, do you want to play this game? No. Do you want to play the game? No. You just don't want to play. Doesn't matter which way we bring you the truth, you do not want to hear, was the point of that parable. Right? Now, here, again, is a parable. It's a story with a lesson attached to it. And this one, it's about two debtors. The parable of two debtors. You see, a moneylender, says Jesus, when he was going through his books, he was going through his balance record, he found, oh, these two people owe me money. I must get my money. And so he goes to see these two debtors. But the only problem was, these two debtors couldn't repay the money lender at all. There was no chance of them being able to pay the money back. The one debtor owed him 500 denarii. Now, a denarii was about the average pay for a day's work those days. So, 500 days' work. get it? It's a big amount, says scripture. And and when Jesus uses these parables, he always uses the extremes. So, it's a big amount. There was no way that this guy could repay the money lender that day. And then the other man owed less. 50 denarii. About two months' salary. But the point is, he couldn't repay it that day. And what was the rule those days? Remember from previously in our studies in Luke? If you couldn't repay money, put in prison, legs broken, they brought in the heavy boys. And so you would be extorted. Threats would be made against you. Yes, possibly your legs might even be broken one at a time until you paid. Or maybe they had a house and content sale Or you were put into slavery. They were allowed to do that. You couldn't pay your debts. Or you'd go to prison. And so this moneylender had every right to do this to these two debtors. But what does he do, says Jesus? He does the impossible. He does the surprising, the unthinkable. He graciously forgives them both and writes off the debt. Now that wouldn't have happened. But he does. And then Jesus asks the setup question. I call it a setup. Those of you who play basketball, you've got someone who sets up and then the slam dunk, all right? Here's the setup question. Jesus throws in the air. And who would the who would love the money lender more, Simon? Now it's obvious, isn't it? Why is Jesus asking you this? This is an obvious question. And that's why Simon says, well, I suppose. It's the one who is forgiven most. Well done, Simon. You've got the answer right, says Jesus. You judge correctly. You see, Simon, you can judge accurately when it comes to human affairs. You can judge accurately, Simon, when it comes to money affairs, but not when it comes to the heart and forgiveness from God. You see, here I am, Simon, and I can see this hidden speak happening because it was kind of unsaid here. Here I am, Simon, I am your money lender in life. You haven't given me the reverence due to me, Simon. You've invited me into your home, and yet you didn't recognise me or give me the reverence due to me, even though I have the charge over your spiritual debt, which you cannot repay, Simon. And that is why Jesus... Spells it out for Simon. And now, just see the camera again. Jesus turns to the woman, but he speaks to Simon. He's making a point here. He turns to the woman, and again to all those in the house, because this is publicly being said here now. Everyone, you can see those Pharisees sitting there at their little table. They're all listening to what Jesus is saying here to Simon. He says to Simon, This sinful woman, this one who's an outcast in your eyes, Simon, She knows who I am. And she has shown me the love and the reverence you didn't give me, Simon. So Simon's starting to feel a bit smaller at this stage. You didn't even show me the common courtesies. Jesus really spells it out now; He's rubbing it in a bit. You didn't even show me the common courtesies of a good host, Simon. I I entered your home. Whose invitation was it? Did I want to come? You asked me to come, Simon. And I came to your home. And you didn't even give me water for my feet, Simon. And so here I was in your house, defiling your house by your rules, Simon. But she, she washed my feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. All she had, she gave. She wiped them with her hair. You gave me no welcoming kiss, Simon. But she, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The unclean bit of me, she hasn't ceased kissing my feet, Simon. You didn't anoint my head with or my beard with oil. Not even cheap oil, Simon. Because sometimes they used to do that. But she has not ceased to anoint my feet with costly perfume. She's the poor one and she's got the costly perfume. You are the rich one, Simon, and you are the poor one. You see, you have failed as a host, Simon. But that's not the main point. Jesus is still getting to the sting. Yes, my reception was cold, patronizing and discourteous, Simon. But you have an even greater failing, Simon. And now, there's, here's the sting. Her sin, yes, especially in your eyes, the sinner, her sin, Simon, has been forgiven. And how do I know that, Simon? Look at the evidence. Look at her outpouring of love towards me. Look at her thankful heart, Simon. That's how I know that this woman understands that she's been forgiven. She's thankful and she can't help herself. She's so thankful towards me. But Simon, and here's that thing, he who is forgiven little, loves little. How much have you been forgiven, Simon? Simon? Jesus isn't, 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 he isn't even saying, if the shoe fits, put it on. He's saying, Simon, put on the shoe, it fits. Do you get the difference? You see, how great you see your sin and your need to be forgiven is the greatness of your thankfulness. What Jesus is pointing out to Simon is that self-righteous people have no need of a Saviour. Self-righteous people have no need of a Saviour. Self-righteous people are thankless towards God. And self-righteous people see their sin as not that serious. Tell me, where are you this morning when it comes to the way you see your sin and Jesus Christ and what He has done for you? Do you see your need of a Saviour? Are you thankful towards Him for what He's done daily? Do you see your sin is not serious? You see, forgiven people react in a different way. Forgiven people recognize that they need a Saviour, that they can't repay what Christ has done. Forgiven people know that they are filled with thankfulness and they express their thankfulness to their Saviour. And they even do it publicly. And forgiven people see their sin in its proper perspective because they know that God is a holy God and that He cannot endure any sin. And yet He saved me. And they are thankful. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? Those people who are good people in their own eyes, think that they haven't got much sin to be forgiven for. And that's where Simon was. He was big in his own eyes, but God was small. Now let's look at Jesus, verse 48 to 50. How does Jesus now finish off this whole situation? He's made his point to Simon. I think Simon gets it. But the people still don't seem to get it, the Pharisees. And this woman is probably standing there Now she's become the centre of attention, which she really didn't want to be. But here she is. Jesus is going to deal with her as well. You see, she has shown her thankfulness to the Lord publicly. And so he finishes what he starts. Jesus always finishes what he starts in our lives. And here's an example. He turns to this woman again and he says to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Not your sins are forgiven. Get it there. It's past tense. Your sins have been forgiven. You see, and that shows us that previously, she must have come to this insight. She must have had her sins forgiven, and when she heard that Jesus was here, she bucked everything to get there, to show him that she loves him for what he's done. Your sins have been forgiven. And so he confirms that in her. Because her coming into a Pharisee home, they would have done everything to disparage this woman on the streets. But the people at the tables, the other Pharisees sitting there, they didn't get it. Not yet. Because we see they begin to say to themselves, again, they thinking thoughts. They begin to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Now don't miss that two, those two words, this man. Who is this man? They were really pushing Jesus down. Who does this guy think he is? He calls himself a rabbi. He calls himself the great teacher. He even says he's the Messiah. But who does this man think he is? He even forgives sins. He's doing what only God can do. Get it? He's doing what only God can do. They needed to repeat this to themselves. You see, it's not that they didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. And that's why that previous parable comes into play about the bratty kids. They didn't want to see that he was the Messiah. And so turning to the woman again, Jesus makes a statement that only God can make. He kind of confirms what these Pharisees didn't want to um, see. He confirms by making a statement that only God can make to her because only God can see the heart. He reaffirms her in her faith. He says to her, your faith, has saved you. Go in peace. You see, it wasn't her thankfulness that saved her. Jesus didn't save her because she was so thankful. Jesus saved her because she put her trust in him first. Then the thanks came. Do you get the difference? You see, there are those around today who would teach us differently. They would say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to go on a pilgrimage to there, and then you will be saved. Jesus says, no, put your trust in me first. You don't need to do anything else. I will do the rest. And then be thankful to me. We need to understand that. It's faith that saves, not works. Have that clear in your head. It doesn't help being a good person. You will go straight to hell if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you're a good person here today, I plead with you. Don't trust in your goodness. Bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one can come to the Father except through me. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? The gospel message comes to you this morning. Alright, that's then. Now we come to the so what question. We've read this in scripture. Yep, interesting story. Yep, I didn't know that about eating things. But, so what? How does that affect you and I? You see, there's purpose in this for you and I too. Otherwise, God would have given us his word, said it, read it, and then you can go to heaven and it's all over. No? We've got to live it out now. We've got to learn from these people. So what can we learn? And I've got five things that I want to put before you very shortly this morning. And the first thing is, give Thanks! Exclamation mark. Give thanks. Be thankful. And the question I want to ask you is, how much have you been forgiven? As you're sitting here in your chair this morning, how much have you been forgiven? Can you remember back where you were? How much have you been forgiven? In other words, are you still overcome by the greatness of God's mercy to you? Or have you kind of started growing blasé to it? and maybe even a little bit indifferent towards your sin. Are you still grateful that He saved you? You see, in His great love and in His mercy, Jesus Christ showed you grace. And we were singing about grace just before we started. We were singing about how it's God's work in us. Grace is the love that paid a price, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did. And we we are accepted by God's grace alone. He has to do it in us. But you see, if your love for God and His grace has grown cold and unemotional, maybe you're getting to that point where you come to- where you come to think that He owed it to you? Did God owe it to you to save you? Is that the way you live your life as a believer? By being thankless. He paid your debt that you could in no way pay. How could you take the sin of the whole world on you so that you could be saved? You can't do it, you see. Christ Jesus had to do it. But do, do you live a life that reflects it in your thankfulness to Him? Or have you grown blise to Jesus Christ and His love? God paid your debt of sin in full through Jesus Christ when you had no way of doing it. So how big is your sin in your life? you tend to diminish it? you tend to see yourself as perhaps a little sinner, just a little sinner, before God, every now and then, maybe? You see, if you do, you've got the attitude of Simon, the Pharisee. It's growing in you. We should see ourselves as unworthy objects of God's grace, as this woman did. She came with no strings attached. She bashed her way into their home, and she worshipped at her master's feet. Heart of thankfulness. Secondly, love. Love. What is your attitude to non-Christians? Have you perhaps got the attitude of Simon the Pharisee towards sinners? Tell me this morning as you sit there, do you have a strong desire to see the lost saved? When you see people around you and they're not saved, do you plead, Lord, save that person? Do you ever pray for the unsaved? Or do you perhaps look down your nose and sit in judgment of sinners? Do you see non-Christians for who they are right now and who they have been in their lives? Or do you see... Unbelievers, when you look at them, do you see them in the light of who God can make them to be? Do you see the God potential in them? Or do you just see what they're doing? You see, sometimes unbelievers look at us. They see our lives, right? They see that we live different lives. And then the feeling comes across them. I'd like to change too. They do. Because that's how the gospel works, right? They see us and they think, Man, I'd like to have my life worked out as well. I'd like to change. But you know when they look at us, what do they see in our eyes when we look at them? Do they see a love for them? Or do they see us looking down our noses at them? You see, because what we are saying to them is, that yes, I'm saved, and the gospel has reached me, and I've changed, but I don't know about you. I don't know if God can save you. They see it in us, in our attitudes. And so it's so important for us to love the lost. Not in their lostness, but we love them for the hope that this amazing grace might also come their way. And we love them. Can they see it in you? Thirdly, don't just love these unbelievers. Engage with them. Engage with them. And the question I want to ask you is this. Do you isolate yourself from sinners? It's a very real question today. You see, we get so busy with churches. We get so busy with our church activities, home groups, all kinds of schooling. We we get so busy with our Christian stuff. There's no time for non-Christians anymore. We don't put ourselves among unbelievers anymore. It's possible to live a life just among believers, nearly. But Jesus understood that in order for light to shine in darkness, the light must engage the darkness. And that is why Jesus said yes, when Simon the Pharisee invited him. He knew what was going to happen, but he wanted to engage with the darkness. He put himself out there. Are you perhaps staying safe in the comfortable confines of the church and its activities? Or perhaps you are deliberately engaging, and the key word here today is intentionally. They use it in the Baptist magazine, so I'll use it. Are you being intentional about reaching unbelievers? In other words, how do I do that? Well, join social activities, and I mean the good ones, by the way. Go and do the community activities with unbelievers. Go and play the sport with them on the sports field. Go to the pottery classes with them in the community. Sing in the community choir. Do the volunteer work. Join the fishing club as long as you're not out on Sundays. That's where you should be is here. Alright? Join the Meals on Wheels Society that helps people. But be among unbelievers so that your light can shine. Engage with them. And yes, when they ask you difficult questions, you might not know the answer. But just say to them, I'll get back to you. And then get back to them. But go and study. Come back and explain. That's how unbelievers are reached, you see. We need to engage with them as Christians, not isolate ourselves. So you need to give thanks. You need to what? Love. And you need to engage. Fourth one is share. And here's the question. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Really? Do you believe in the power of of the gospel? How will we know that? Have you ever in your life shared the gospel message with one person? I'll make it easy. One person ever. The gospel. Have you? Do you really believe in the power of the gospel to save? Do you know how to present the gospel message? It's happening in you, right? But have you ever learned to verbalize that? It's something you've got to learn. And I'm not saying a little poem, you've got to do this and that. No, you've got to know what's happened and be able to give a reason for the faith that is within you. That's what he's talking about. Does the message that you give to unbelievers, does it include that no hole in their life is too deep for the reach of the Saviour? Does it say that to them? Jesus, God, is all-powerful. doesn't matter what your situation is. He can do something about it. Or was it all hell and damnation? Which is a part of the message. Do you know how to share your faith? There are things out now. You can get a DVD to help you with it. There's a program and I've got it in my office. If anyone wants to borrow it from me, it's a DVD series. About 12 weeks. It takes 12 programs on how to share your faith. It's called Two Ways to Live. You go to our website and you click on the link. It's there. Two Ways to Live. Go and look at it. Download it. Learn it. And then learn to just be natural about the way you can speak about your faith. There's the gospel DVD. Have you ever even given that gospel DVD with a message on it to someone? You don't have to say a word. Just give it to someone. Have you ever done that? We've got little tracks, newly arrived, called Two Roads. Very powerful when God uses them. Have you ever given anyone a tract? The guy at the garage when you fill up fuel? person who comes to your home, Jehovah's Witness who might knock on your door? Have you? Do you believe in the power of the gospel? And lastly this morning, when you've spoken to someone about the words, when you've spoken the gospel message to someone, when you've been praying for someone for 55 years, here's the key word, wait. Wait. God will do His work in His way, not in your way. He will do it in His timing, not in your timing. But God will do His work. And as we reach out to these people whose lives are radically out of touch with God, as we see them interacting with the world, we must be patient. We give them the gospel message and we wait. We get alongside them. We encourage them. We live the life in front of them. We let the light shine out of our lives, into their lives, because it's Jesus Christ doing it through us. We don't put the cart in front of the horse. Sometimes we want to bash and shivvy people into heaven. We can't do that. God has to do the work in His way and in His time. You do what you must do. Present the gospel message. Love them like Jesus Christ. And God will do the rest. I want to put two verses, one verse in front of you this morning and I'm going to ask that you just put it up there. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. Now look at these verses. Just put it up. Next slide please. For by grace you have been saved. Now look at that carefully because your name is going to come in here soon. For by grace you have been saved. Not by your works. By grace you have been saved through faith, not through your thankfulness, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, the free gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now let's say that together, and where it says you, I want you to put I in there, so it gets personal. Alright, read through with me. For by grace I have been saved through faith. And that not of myself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest I should boast. Is that true in your life? Jesus teaches Simon here this morning, where much has been forgiven, there will be much love. Where little has been forgiven, there will be little love. Do you have an attitude of gratitude? To use an old slang phrase. Do you have an attitude of gratitude to God? Does that show in your life in the way that you thank Him? In the way that you love unbelievers? In the way that you engage with the world? In the way that you share the gospel message? In the way that you wait for God to do His work? Does it show? I pray that the Holy Spirit will do His work In you and in me this week as we serve him. Let's pray. Lord, in our society today we are taught that the best person, the strongest person wins. And yet you teach us that when we come to you in humility, when we come and we know that you are God, that is when you do your work. And Lord, how do we come to know you like that? It's because you've already been working in us through your grace. Lord, thank you that we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. And we respond in faith to that work of grace. And then you make us new. You give us life where there was only death. And then you make us perfect in your Son over time. Lord, thank you for that great work that you do. But Lord, now help us in this week to live out that saving message in the way that we live to people around us. Lord, save us from looking down our noses at those who do not yet know you and thinking how good we are. Lord, may we see them as those who have the potential to be saved by Jesus Christ and changed by you. May we love them with the love of Jesus Christ so that they can even see it in us. Lord, keep us close to our knees in thankfulness to you. May we be like this woman who just poured out her thanks. She didn't matter who thought what. Gave it up to you. May we be thankful in that way, Lord. And Lord, help us as Westerners to even show it through our emotions. Help us to cry out in thankfulness before you and to give you praise. Because you are great. You are our great God in deeds. You are the one who does it. You are the one who has does it, has done it, and you are the one who will continue to make us to be like your son until you bring us home to be with you. Thank you for this hope you give to us, Lord Jesus.